0: (coughs) Uh, that was that was a good pleasant surprise talk about making an interest uh, entrance that was that was good Um, I'm gonna go ahead and pray before we get started dearly father we just thank you for all that you do for us and we thank you for your love and your mercy and the ways that you love us in ways that we can't even imagine And at this time, as we hear the word from you, we pray that you would just help us to be open to what it is you might be saying to our hearts, that there's a variety of things and uh, that we would be open to the change that you might call us to in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 26. Acts chapter 8 starting with verse 26. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, And a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in the chariot on his way home from reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The Spirit told Philip, Go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? How can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come and sit up with him. Uh, Now the scripture passage he was reading was this, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before his shearers, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about? Himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus being with... That scripture, beginning with that scripture. And they were traveling down the road. They came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there is water. What should keep me from being baptized? So they ordered the chariot to stop. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. When, he, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Astius, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So um, I'm, I'm, uh, this is a passage that I chose partially uh, because uh, in my last class called hermeneutics, which is just a fancy term for interpreting scripture. Um, I had given this passage to interpret, and and so I spent a lot of time reading the background stuff, and I ended up turning in a four-stage paper on it. I thought I don't really want to waste it if it's something that I took all that time to go through, (laughs) so I thought that I'd go ahead and use that this morning, Um, and so uh, and that's why part of why I feel led to do this, but. if you hadn't noticed, I do want to address an elephant in a room that maybe some of you noticed, maybe some of you didn't notice. Um, verse 37, if you're paying attention on the screen, you may not have seen it. Uh, if you have an, a King James Version or a New King James Version, you may have noticed it. Uh, that In the version that I just read, uh, it jumps straight from 36 to 38 and I want to address that later. I want to talk about why it's, if we can get to that, I want to talk about why it was taken out, and at the same time, I want to talk about what the implications of it being taken out are. Uh, But first, I want to get through the bulk of this sermon, and so we will get to that in a bit. I don't want to spend too much time on the context of this, because Pastor Bill just preached most of this. He preached up until chapter six, if I remember right. He preached to uh, the chosen seven that were chosen, and two of those that were chosen seven to, or to minister to the Hellenistic Jewish widows who were being neglected, two of those that became a focal point were both Stephen and Philip. And they became very important at this period in time after they were chosen to serve the Jewish widows that were being neglected. And so... After Stephen was put to death, um, if any of you don't know that, Stephen was put to death after he preached the gospel, and it was really the first martyr that was put to death, and that him being put to death caused persecution to break out, that the Jewish people began to persecute Christians and caused many of them to flee from Jerusalem, and excluding some of the apostles that stayed behind. And so... Um, this is important. Uh, one of the things we need to realize, first of all, that I didn't actually say right off the bat, is that uh, this is a narrative. It's a story. The book of Acts is. And sometimes, if we miss that, we, we can tend to realize that it, we, we can tend to neglect the fact that it is about us. Um, that even though this ends in 28, the book ends at 28, it is a narrative about us that is a continuing story that is the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so I think that that's important to realize because we are a part of that story, even though that book of Acts ends at 28. And so, um, so we are included in this. And so um, this is really, a, a, this whole book is really a testimony of two things, this whole chapter that we're going to be preaching out of. And so uh, let me back up. It's It's to those who are not believers, those who, uh, just like the Ethiopian, come to know Christ, but it's also to those who are believers that it addresses two different things here. It addresses the fact that uh, the gospel is being taken outside of Jerusalem to Gentiles, but it also addresses the fact of us as Christians and how we should respond like Philip when we're told to go. And so it really it talks about those different things. And that's going to be two major focuses this morning. But after Stephen's persecution, it caused many Christians to flee. And so um, they, they, this was the beginning of the gospel being spread outside of Jerusalem. And so this story cannot be taken isolation out of the rest of the book. Uh, because there are chapters around it, there are verses around it that work together to tell one big story, and that is Christ has died for our sins, he is raised from the dead, and the gospel must be shared to the ends of the earth. And so... So it starts out, the Gospel, after the persecution. It starts out in Jerusalem before the persecution. And after the persecution, it goes to Samaria. Philip goes to Samaria. And then after he's in Samaria, he starts witnessing to Samaritans, which Samaritans are like Jewish... Gentiles, those who are mixed with Jewish Gentiles, they're hated uh, by the Jewish people. Uh, but he takes the gospel to Samaria where he shares the gospel with them. And after that, he goes down and he runs into this Ethiopian that we're going to be talking about today. And uh, this Ethiopian is, is now he's someone who is not from where they're around. He's from a different part of the world. And so if we remember what Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, This is what Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it began in Jerusalem. Because of persecution, it went to Samaria. And now because of Philip going and following God's obedience, following God in obedience, it's going to the ends of the earth in part by this Ethiopian who's going to hear the gospel and then he's going to take it back to his homeland. And so this is why it's important, because this is a moment where we start to see the first Gentile reached with the gospel, and all of us are Gentiles. So this is really first moment that led to all of us, uh, the gospel coming to all of us. And so um, from this point on, uh, most of the book will be focused on Gentiles coming to know Christ and And so that's that's why it's why important for us to understand because it's how it got to us and we as Christians are to be disciples who make disciples and so we are just as Philip we are just as those who were disciples within the book of Acts we are called to do that as well and so I'm going to start with verse 26 and uh, go from there. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, "Get up and go south to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road." So there's this messenger this this angel that came to Philip and he said to get up and go. And this is a call to action. This is God telling Philip to get up and go to a road that's down by uh, Jerusalem and Gaza. And so what happened next was going to be dependent on whether Philip was going to be obedient or not to what God was calling him to do. God did not give Philip many details right off the bat, if we notice that. Uh, He said simply to get up and go. And uh, the only destination we know at this point is a road. Um, and now this road is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, if I measured that right, uh, somewhere between a city named Maresa and Gaza, and it's parts of that road actually still exist today. So it's very much a real road uh, that still exists, and that's about as much detail as Philip gets. And so in a way that this applies to us as Christians today, that much like Philip, God does not always give us a list of details on what we're to do. You know, exactly where we're to go at the time that he wants us to go. And oftentimes God wants us to trust him and rely on him as he tells us to go. And then he gives us more information as we go. And so there's that saying out there that uh, there's actually hanging up in my office where it says, where God guides, he provides. So no matter where God guides us to in our lives, we can always trust him to provide exactly what we need to accomplish what he has us to do. And so that's what we need to learn as Christians, to rely on him for that. And so I remember when I, when I came here for the first time, and, and many of you know the story about how God got me here. I'm not going to spend any time talking about that. But the fact was, the more that I learned to say yes to Jesus, the more that I learned to trust him, in spite of the fact that it didn't make sense to me. It didn't always make sense to me. You know, when I was told that I was going to be working with youth, it's like that sounded like a terrible idea to me because I had no idea how to interact with youth, and I still don't. I've gotten better, but <laughs> definitely not where I could be. Um, I was terrified of the idea of that, something new, but the more I said yes when God was calling me to do something new, the more I could see him just line up everything to fit exactly how he was calling me to do. Um, It still blows my mind when I stop and think about that. Um, I don't know if I could tell any of the graduates that that are here this morning and uh, not currently with us, but they're here with us this morning, is that once you've graduated, you're going into the world. And the best thing that you can do is that you can make your life about God. You can put God at the center of your life. And he will guide and direct you. And when you do that, everything falls into place. It's something that I wish that I would have understood when I graduated, but I had to become really dumb before I could gain a little bit of wisdom. So, and I think that's about how all of us work. But, um, but the point of this is, is that God is calling all of us as Christians to do something. And we don't always know what that is. But the question is, the question we should ask ourselves is, are we listening to what God is calling us to do? And are we being obedient when we hear him call us to do something? You know, God may make your path clear as day, or he may just be calling you to one step of obedience at a time, just like he did with Philip. Didn't give him much detail, said, go down to a road. It's a very vague destination. Just go down to this road. And and he had to trust him. He got up and went. And so the more we learn to trust him, uh, the more we see him guiding us in our lives and providing for us as we go. And so rest assured, if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a believer in Christ, God is calling you to do something. He's calling all of us to do something. He's calling to more than just to live for ourselves and our lives, and that's easy to do in our culture. Our culture gives us all sorts of comforts uh, that cause us to forget as Christians that God is calling us to do more. Um, but rest assured, we're all called to do something. And so don't squander. We can't squander the call that God has on our lives or we'll miss out on the opportunities and the better life that he has called us to live uh, while we're here as Christians. And so Philip would have missed out on that if he chose to ignore God calling him. He, he would have missed out on the great things that, even though he wasn't given a lot of instruction, the great things that God had for him. Um, verse 27 So he got up and went. Uh, There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on the way home, reading the prophet of Isaiah out loud. And so note Philip's response in his obedience. Uh, He doesn't ask why. He doesn't make any excuses as to why he can't go. He doesn't try to get out of it. He simply got up and went. With the limited instructions that God had given him, he just simply got up and went. That's, that's obedience on display. And so this is estimated at least a day's journey on, on foot where he is up in Samaria going down to this road that's uh, 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. You know, And then most of the time, like I don't even want to walk an hour to get some exercise, and that shows, but... like. Um, but God, God, it was a big distance that he trusted him, and that's the point. And so what we see here is that our faith is measured. The faith that we say that we have in God is measured by our obedience as we seek out to do what God's will is for our lives. That if we say we trust God, if we say we have faith in God, that when he says to move, we move. And so if we want to know how strong our faith is in God, we need only to see how far we're willing to go to reach and to do what he wants us to do. And I'm not talking about distance. I'm not talking about walking a day's journey. I'm just saying, what are we willing to do with our lives to give up for him? Am I willing to seek God's will for my life or am I content to live with the will that I have for my life? Am I content to just show up on a Sunday morning and then the rest of the week, well, that's my time. I'm gonna do what I want with it. Or am I, am I gonna pursue what God wants me that maybe he has something he wants me to do with my life outside of This morning, And so, am I willing to seek that? And it's a hard question to ask ourselves because it means surrender. It means giving up the things in our life that we think we have to have, that we think we have to hold on to, and it's uncomfortable, especially in a society where their goal is to make us as comfortable as possible. Leaving that comfort behind is a hard thing to do sometimes, but it is something that sometimes God calls us to do when he directs us to go somewhere. So, Also in verse 27, Philip is at this road. He's arrived at this road. He doesn't know why he's here still until he looks up and he sees this Ethiopian, this eunuch. And so maybe it's starting to become clear. God hasn't quite spoke to him to tell him what to do next, but he's starting to see that there's a reason uh, why he's here. Now, this Ethiopian is from, well, he's from Ethiopia, but it's not the same Ethiopia that we think about today. When we think Ethiopia, um, this is also known as Cush in the Old Testament. So if you see Cushites and Cush, uh, that's really what this is talking about. Uh, The uh, modern one is a little further south than where this is. And so it's, it's not to be confused with that. Um, but it's a very wealthy place, or at least it was a very wealthy place. It was full of gold, and that's actually where Egypt got their gold from. They got most of their gold from Ethiopia. And so, um, it's, uh, and so we see that they're, they're really better, they're good off, they're well off. <laughs> um, but along with being full of gold, along with having all of this stuff, they were also full of idolatry because they worshiped the same gods that Egypt worshipped. And so they were, they were full of idolatry, full of various gods that uh, they were worshipped in Egypt. And so, because they weren't that far from Egypt. And so the, the queen that we talk about here is Queen Candace. And uh, the name Candace doesn't, because I tried to figure out like, okay, what timeline based on a queen Candace. It doesn't give us any information because that was a common name for queens in that time at that region. And so uh, it doesn't tell us a lot about her as a queen. Uh, But much like Pharaoh, Pharaoh was a common name for rulers of Egypt. Uh, But because... This Ethiopian eunuch is the treasure of the queen's entire treasury. We can assume that he is both important and he is wealthy because Ethiopia was a wealthy country, as I said before. And uh, one of the things about being a eunuch is that he would have been emasculated. And that's about as much detail as I feel comfortable giving about that. Um, But uh, because he was emasculated, he would not have been allowed to be in the assembly of God's people. Um, And if you want more on that, you can write down Deuteronomy 23.1, because that's as much as I'm going to go into that. But uh, if you want more on that and what God said about that situation. uh, So he would have been cut off from the Jews. He wouldn't have been allowed to be a Jew, not only because of his emasculation, but also because he was a Gentile. And as we all know, the Jewish people kind of looked down on Gentiles. And so he would have been considered a type of outcast, at least in the eyes of the Jew. But even though he would have been considered an outcast to some Jews, uh, he was a God-fearing Gentile. We know this because he's on his way home from Jerusalem after worshiping God, worshiping the one true God. So even though he had a background of idolatry, even though he had a background full of idols, somehow he became a God-fearing Gentile, someone who feared God and worshiped the one true God. And so this man, if we think about this, presents us with at least three different types of people, maybe more, but I came up with three different types of people, uh, that God is calling us to reach as Christians. And so the first one would be those who believe themselves to know God but don't. Those who believe themselves to know God but don't. Those who are from a different background, a different culture, a different country, a different ethnic group or whatever, that's number two. Uh, those who are from a different background, country, ethnic group. Uh, and number three, those who are considered outcasts. So those are three different types of people that are represented in this one eunuch uh, that we can reach out to with the gospel, with love, with our time reaching out to them. And so, so first of all, those who believe themselves to know God, but they don't. But they, there are plenty of people who believe themselves to know God. This eunuch thought he knew God, but he didn't. He didn't truly know God. Um, I think about cults with Mormonism. If you think about Mormonism, they they often relate themselves to us as Christians. And if they come to your door, they can sit down with you, and you can pretty well they can convince you that they're pretty well just the same as Christians. But the truth is, is that the God that they worship used to be a man that became God. Uh, the Jesus that they follow is not God's son. Well, he's God's son in a way. He, he's not God in the flesh. He's not God incarnate. He's actually Lucifer's brother. And so that's a very different Jesus than the one we believe in as Christians. And apart from that, the most important thing, one of the most important things is in their book, it says you are saved by grace after all you can do. So it's not you're just saved by grace you got to do something and then grace covers the rest very different than the gospel that we we know as christians when it says it is only faith that can save us it's nothing else apart from faith that can save us and so um you know, or there's Muslims, they reverence Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. They believe they know the one true God. They would say they have the same God the Jews worship, or it's Jewish, who, um, it's the Jewish religion. Uh, those who show up even on a, on a, in a Bible-believing church on a Sunday morning, believe it or not, there are many who show up in a Bible-believing church who believe themselves to know God, but don't. And so there, there are many people who think they know God, just like this eunuch did. He came from Jerusalem, worshiping the God. But without Jesus, it is impossible to know God without him. Jesus tells us we must worship God in spirit and in truth. It's impossible to have a relationship with God without knowing Jesus. And there are those who claim that they know Jesus, but they've accepted a false gospel. and Maybe, maybe just anyone who comes to a Bible-believing church that isn't necessarily Muslim or Mormon or any of those, but they've accepted a false gospel. They live by works to make them right instead of by faith, which produces works, as we talked about in James a little while back, that when you believe in Christ, you're saved, you're born again. And because of that, because you've experienced the love of God and you've experienced being born again, you've turned to do things for God instead of living for yourself. It's not the other way around. I don't do things to be right with God. I do things because I've been made right with God. So that's a false gospel. And and then um, some of those individuals may be here this morning. I don't know anybody's heart. I'm not taking time to try to figure out anybody's heart, but there may be some here this morning who believe themselves to know God that don't. But the point is, is that we should be aware of that as Christians, and we should seek to reach out to them with the gospel. Um. Next, there are those who are from a different race, a different country, a different ethnic group. And, uh, and there are many Christians in our country, and I've, I've been guilty at times, that uh, aren't necessarily accepting of those who are from a different country or from a different background of cultural, ethnical things. And um, I can remember after 9-11, I can remember there was this great fear that we had that if many people saw somebody with a turban, they'd freak out. And, and they, would, they would freak out and think, oh, it's a terrorist. And, and, and some of that stuff still happens today, that there's many, many Christians in our country who look at people that way. And, and we have reasons. We say, well, well, if they need, they need to do things this way or that way in order for us to accept them. And they need to not be this way. They need to, some people say they need to learn to speak our language. But the truth is, like, we have all these reasons sometimes that we think justifies it, that we think makes it okay, it makes it normal, it's rational, it makes sense, but it's a completely worldly way of looking at it. Because Christ has not called us to do that. Christ has not called us to look at people as different. And, and to, because a lot of times it's like we could say we love the world, but we have those feelings that keep us from reaching out to those who we claim to love. That we, we we're angry towards them, we're bitter, we're, we're not, we feel insecure around them. And so um, I think sometimes we need to stop and think about the opportunities that we've been given, though, because our country does not send out as many missionaries as it could. And so maybe we could look at it this way, that maybe God is sending the world to us, because there is an incredible amount of diversity in our country. I mean, it really is incredible when you think of how many different groups exist in our country and live and have jobs, and are just like us. But sometimes we're too busy responding in fear or anger to kind of stop and think about that. Um, It's not the way Christ has called us to live. When John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, the whole world, um, not just parts of the world, that we're supposed to have that same type of love. That there are 3.2 billion people who are considered unreached in the world, and, and that means they've never heard the gospel, they don't have access to the gospel, many of them don't even know who Jesus is. Um, and there's many people in our country who, who maybe they've heard the name of Jesus, but they have like no idea what the, I've seen that a lot on a Wednesday night. Because most of our youth don't come to church when they're here. They hear the gospel, but they, it's, like, it's like they're hearing it for the first time every time. <laughs> so um, there are those in our country who need to hear the gospel. And uh, one thing is that I've learned is that a lot of time, people who come to our country and and receive the gospel and are changed, they end up going back to their country to share the gospel with their people. I think about this guy that I met at Midwestern Seminary. His name was Howe, and he was from India. And we we got to become good friends. We hung out quite a bit. And I remember asking him at one point, like, why... You know, are you planning on staying here uh, when you're done, when you've graduated? Are you going to stay in Kansas City? And he said, oh, no. It's like, he no, it wasn't even a thought for him. He's like, I'm going back to my country. And it's like, why? I'm going to share the gospel over there. You know, I'm thinking about this guy who's like where he's from, they didn't really have hot water heaters when you take a shower. And so he's taking a shower in the morning and he's standing there for like 10 minutes whenever most people are used to it. You know, I imagine he's missed a couple classes because of that, but uh, he wants to go back to his country where that doesn't exist. Like it's not a thing. Why? Because he loves his people. He loves the people from where he's from. And may I suggest that this is what Christ is telling us. We should love his people as much as he loves his people. Because Christ has called us to do that, too. You know, There is no them. There is only us. There is only one race. It is the human race. God created us all. He created us all and loves all of us. He loves the whole world. And so we should reach the gospel to those who um, are different than us or maybe from different backgrounds. And so finally, the third type of person we could reach to is uh, the outcast, because he was considered an outcast. Why was he considered an outcast? Uh, because of the things that he chose to do that uh, was good in his culture, but not in the Jewish culture. And because he did something that God said not to do, he would have been an outcast from the Jewish people. And so um, I think about that in the fact that there's, there, there's many Christians who leave churches because um, of the fact that they've had Uh, Judgment, like they felt judgment, they felt uh, unloving treatment from Christians or the fact that maybe they haven't come to church because they've ran into people who claim to be Christians who are not loving towards them. Uh, And so because of a certain lifestyle, just like this Ethiopian, because of something that they've done or that they're doing that is sin, uh, that they're not interacting with them the way they could be or that there's people out there who have simply heard things about Christians and they decide not to come to church or go and be involved in that. And so we can say, you know, well, that's their misconception. Because I I believe here that's not something that goes on. I believe here that there are many of us here that we're loving, we're accepting no matter who, uh, no matter what background, no matter what lifestyle that we continuously show love. Um, But that is a perception out there. Uh, You know, what if there is some truth to their perception? Because I think in the history of our country, uh, the more recent years especially, we become known as a religion of hate. And there's various reasons from that. It's, it's not all because they're, they're, you know, some people just accept that a narrative because we're against certain sins. Um, but maybe there's reasons why. There's preachers that you can get on YouTube that I've heard, I've listened to. One of the most hateful preachers who's, who's, who's wished people of certain lifestyles, he's wished them to be dead. Um, and, and there's, there's the Hillbor- Hillsborough... Hillsborough... Westboro Baptist Church, uh, if you remember anything about them, showing up to dead soldiers' funerals holding signs that say, "God, thank God for dead soldiers," and things like that. Those people get the most attention. And I think that's the problem. We aren't like that. but those people get the most attention. Those people are the ones that make the news. Those people are the ones that everybody sees. And so, yes, persecution is normal, but I've seen it firsthand, especially in my own life, Christians being harsh towards those who are living lives of sin. I used to be like that when I was in junior high and high school. Before I became a Christian, I thought I was a Christian. I was one of the most self-righteous people you could have ever met. I was constantly keeping tabs on other people's sin and constantly pointing out their sin in their lives. And I was a complete jerk, and I ran a lot of people off... From wanting to be my friends, potentially reaching them with the gospel. And I am so glad that God rescued me from that because I was not a good person. (laughs) I thought I was, but I was not. Um, You know, I've seen that in my life in the past, I've seen that in other Christians' lives in the past. You know, I've seen faces on Christians who are talking about other people's lifestyles outside of the church and sin. I've seen anger in Christians' faces, which has been in my face at times in the past. Um, and, and, and it's really just like, it shouldn't be a, a facial expression of anger. It shouldn't be anger that we should express. It should be compassion because Jesus showed compassion on all sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, um, anybody you could think of, adulteresses. He, he showed compassion. He reached them with the love that he was given. He had that task of Loving all people that he came for. And that's what he did. And that's who we're supposed to imitate as, as believers. We're supposed to imitate Christians. Um, so the question is, are we doing that? I don't think our church is rejecting people. But what are we doing across that boundary? What are we doing to break through all that noise, the perception that's out there? Are we reaching out into people's lives with the gospel? Are we there for people who are struggling? Maybe they're not struggling. They've embraced sin. Uh, because honestly, the world has, has, replaced the, has replaced Christ in the lives of those simply because they're more loving towards these individuals than many Christians are. And I think that that should be a haunting thought. When the world is considered more loving and accepting than the followers of Christ are. And I think that that's out there. That perception is out there. Whether we want to believe it's true or not, it is out there. Um, And I'm not saying we condone sin, that we say it's okay. But I'm saying that when we play the part of the Holy Spirit and try to convict people with our own words, we do a terrible job of it. We ruin everything. That we should simply love them, share the gospel with them when we get the opportunity to, and let God do the rest. So those are the three types of people. Those who believe themselves to know God and uh, those who, who, um, who are rejected and those who are of different backgrounds. So, verse 29, The Spirit told Philip, Go and join the chariot. So this is another call to action, as I mentioned earlier. The word "go" is to get up and to go. It's the same call to action given by the angel to Philip in in this verse twenty or in verse twenty-six, and now the Holy Spirit's telling him to get up and go. And it's the same action given by Jesus in the Great Commission to go. It's the same action that all of us as Christians are given to go where God sends us. And so in verse thirty, he says, "When when Philip ran up to it." He heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? He said, How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so Philip's obedience is once again on display. He did not call for the chariot to stop. He ran towards the chariot to stop. He's a man on the mission. He's eager to do what God has called him to do. And so even though God's initial instructions were very limited, God led Philip to the exact place at the exact time he wanted him to be there. Where God guides, he provides. And so this is the outcome of our faith being lived out through obedience that God has divine appointments for our lives. And if we're aware of those, he works those out every day, uh, that uh, he causes things to happen, opportunities for us to serve him, uh, but we need to be sensitive to what he's calling us to do. And so he asked the man if, if, he, if he understood what he was reading. He doesn't, but he is, he is hungry for the truth. Uh, all people are seeking truth, whether we believe that or not, uh, even the lost. We live in a world that's full of confusion and chaos, and all of us are trying to find truth in this life. As Christians, we have the truth. We have the gospel. And so we can take two important things on this, and I'll try not to elaborate too long. The Word of God should be something that we as Christians hunger for and seek to understand. We as Christians should hunger for the Word. We should hunger for the Bible and seek to understand it. if this unbelieving Gentile could hunger for the word and try to seek truth for it, then we as Christians should be able to hunger for the word as well. Uh, Number two, the word of God is something that we should help others understand. We should seek to help others understand because that's exactly what Philip did. Not only did he understand this passage that he's about to explain, but he was able to seek help others understand it as well. Uh, This is what some of you guys are doing in your discipleship class. You're learning how to learn scripture and explain it. And when you get the opportunity or to take that scripture and explain it to somebody else and disciple them with that. And so we can't guide others unless we ourselves can feel comfortable in what we're sharing. We can't expect for us to feel comfortable if we don't know uh, how to talk about things. Um, and, and that's why sometimes our nerves get the best of us and we have a hard time <laughs> just opening up in conversation. Uh, but we are responsible for guiding others to understand what we... What, what we are we're responsible for helping others understand to be led to Christ. Um, so we have to understand it first. Verse 32. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb to be silent before the shears, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. He will describe his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. You know, this passage the eunuch is reading about is the perfect place to start with this guy because he's coming back from Jerusalem. So he probably just witnessed a sacrifice or at least heard about a sacrifice. And so this passage would have been like fresh on this person's mind. Uh, The image probably would have been fresh on his mind. And uh, it's Isaiah 53. For those of you who don't know, it's describing a human being sacrificed as a lamb would be sacrificed for sins. This is an odd concept if you don't know what it's about. Like, because this is out of nowhere in the history, of God's people has he required a human sacrifice it wasn't like he he talked about Isaac and Abraham taking him to be sacrificed but it wasn't something that he was actually going to allow and so this would describe a person taking the punishment instead of a lamb instead of an offering which you would see in Jerusalem uh, just like the lamb that was given as a sacrifice for sins Uh, 34, the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. And so the question the eunuch asked uh, led to the sharing of the gospel. Uh, It is not about Isaiah or any other random person, it's about Jesus, the spotless lamb who takes the sin away from the whole world. Every person has sinned against God. All of us have sinned against God, but God, because He is great in love and sent Jesus into this world to take the punishment for our sins so that we can be forgiven. It is by faith that we are forgiven, believing that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so maybe He said something like that when He described the gospel to this eunuch. We don't really hear uh, what He said. But uh, verse 36 As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, Look, there's water. What keeps me from being baptized? 38, Uh, so he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and was baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but when on his way rejoicing, Philip appeared at Astius and... He was traveling and preaching the gospel in the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now this man who heard the gospel, this eunuch, heard the gospel sometime later asked about baptism. And so we get to that awkward part where uh, verse 37 is taken out of many translations. Uh, If you noticed that earlier, if you can see that now, uh, many of your modern translations don't have that in there. And so uh, what that verse says, for those of you who don't have that, uh, verse 37 would say in the King James Version, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. <clears throat> and so that is important, to believe that. And so I first of all, I want to explain why uh, that was taken out and uh, out of many tr- modern translations. And then, I want to explain what the implications of are of that real quick uh, and try to get through that. So the basic reason that that verse has been removed is because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. Now, if you don't know what a manuscript is, manuscripts are copies of the original document. So you have the original document, which is what Luke wrote out by hand. It's called the autograph. And then the manuscripts were copies of the autograph. And so what would happen was they would take the autograph, the original copy, the original document, and they would pass that around. And other people would make copies and then make copies upon copies. And they'd keep making copies and then copies and more copies. And so... The autograph is something we probably don't have because it got passed around so much, it got worn out. We have no knowledge of any that exists. And so, um, to the best of our knowledge, they don't. Uh, And so, we have thousands of copies, which actually makes the Bible one of the most reliable books because we have all those copies to back things up. And so... And so what we see with the King James Version, and it doesn't make it a bad translation at all, I think it's still a reliable, good translation, there's nothing wrong with it, uh, is that they did not have some of the older manuscripts that existed prior to where it pops up. Uh, See, this, this, this manuscript that had that verse in it did not pop up until the 6th century, which was at least a couple hundred years after the original document. All the manuscripts prior to that time, at least from what they found do not contain verse 37. And there were other translations with the same thing. They had the William Tinsdale, that came before King James and the Geneva Bible, which also came before King James. Um, The older older manuscripts that we found since then don't contain 37. And so this indicates that that verse was added later instead of the original document um, with someone who had good intentions, but the evidence points to the fact that it should not have necessarily been there. Um, and so that's the why um, you know the modern translations are trying to remain true to the original text which is why they've taken it out Um, that's the why it's not in there whether we agree with that or not that's the why it's not in there just based on the evidence that shows Uh, what does that mean for the text how does that affect the passage the short answer is that it doesn't affect the passage and here's why In the recent hermeneutic class that I've taken, interpreting scripture, they taught us to ask questions as we go, uh, ask what the text means, and ask things like that. And so when you come to uh, a narrative, which this is a narrative, you ask the question, what happened? Uh, What happened is an important question to ask when you come across something like this. And so if I come to this, I could ask the question, what happened? Well, Philip shared the gospel. And then what happened? The eunuch wanted to be baptized. Why did the eunuch want to be baptized? Because Philip shared the gospel. And so at some point, as he heard the gospel, he believed what Philip was saying. And that's why he wanted to be baptized, because of his faith. And so Philip shared the gospel. The later eunuch wanted to be baptized. And so at some point after hearing the gospel, and that's what John 3.16, whoever believes in him will not perish. See, that belief, that faith actually happens inside. It happens inside of us. Him wanting to be baptized is the evidence of his faith. And there are many Christians who fear that this could lead to someone believing that baptism uh, is something that saves you. And I understand that. That's how I used to feel until I thought about it a little deeper. And, um, and it can come across that way. But the, honestly, that you could do that with many verses. There are many verses within the New Testament that you could do the exact same thing with. But you would have to ignore the rest of the New Testament and even parts of the Old Testament to come to the fact of believing that baptism saves you. Um, What I've learned is that if, if if one part of if we pull out one verse and it contradicts anything else the Bible says elsewhere, then our interpretation becomes wrong, and so all the rest of the Bible is right. So what if someone does take that out of context? Well, first of all, the, the, the version that we've read today is a Baptist version. Uh, the CSB is what I've read out of. You would think if anybody would want to keep it in there, it would be them, but they wanted to remain true to the actual original text. Uh, but if we're going to worry about it being taken out of context, then we also need to be worried about what Peter says after his first sermon. Whenever he preaches his sermon and he get done preaching his sermon and people hear it and they say, well, what should we do? And he says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. And I want to read that exactly right. I don't want to get that wrong. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so he says, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. What are we going to do with that? Because people take that out of context all the time. Ask the same question. Why? What did Peter do? He shared the gospel. Then they wanted to be better. Then they asked, What should we do? Why did they ask, What should we do? Because they believed the gospel that was shared in their hearts. Um, and so the evidence they believed is that they asked the question What should we do? They wouldn't have asked that question if they didn't believe what Peter was saying. And so he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so why does he say for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, the answer lies in the word for. Uh, If I say that I'm going to take a Tylenol for a headache, I'm not taking a Tylenol to get a headache. I'm taking a Tylenol because I have a headache. And so I'm not going to be baptized to be forgiven of sin. I'm going to be baptized because I've been forgiven of sin, because I've put my faith in Jesus. And so... um, You know, people take this verse out of context all the time, and we should be worried about that if that's the case. But when you take something out of context, you ignore everything around it. Because in verse 41, he says later on, uh, those who accepted his message were baptized. Only those who accepted his message were baptized. Most people don't look at 31. They only focus on 38. And so... The fact is, is that you cannot read the whole Bible and come to the conclusion based on that. You have to take it out of context that baptism saves you. I mean, if you think in the Old Testament, Paul uses the example of uh, Abraham believing in God and it was attributed to him as righteousness. The Bible tells that over and over again. But people have taken what Paul says and this other text that Philip says says, uh, out, outside of context um, for a long time, and they'll continue to do that. And that's why it goes back to, like, we need to understand the Word. We need to understand how to explain that as Christians. That goes back to Philip understanding the Scripture so that when someone comes to us with that question and they say, look, this says baptism saves you, we can stop and say, no, but look at this and this and this, but we have to be able to understand that as Christians in order to do that. Otherwise, we become fooled because we don't know what the Scripture says. And so... Um. Philip the eunuch, and uh, even in Paul's circumstances, they they, be, they were baptized as a result of putting their faith in Jesus. Jesus commands us to be baptized, and that's his first response in obedience. So the whole point of that is because it is important to think about, because if we are talking about this this Ethiopian coming to Christ, we do need to recognize what brought him to Christ, that it's only by faith in Jesus and what he did for him on the cross that brought him into that relationship. And so that verse being there, although might be helpful, without it being there, we can still read the rest of the Bible and come to that conclusion and help others come to that conclusion. Of, of what it looks like to put our faith in Jesus and come to salvation. And so that's for those who don't. So the application for the Christian was to be obedient. The application for the unbeliever is that you can come to Christ if you just put your faith in Jesus. Um, so ask the question to yourself this morning. Ask yourself, are you being obedient to what God has called you to be? And uh, what he's called you to do with your life, because he's called us to do so much more than what we oftentimes think we're supposed to do. Um, Are you seeking out his will for your life? Are you seeking out what he wants you to do with your life? Are you you going when he says go? Are you living? Are you reaching out to those who we talked about, those who are of a different culture, those who are of... Rejected, who are being rejected, and those who believe themselves to know God and don't, because that's what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to be a light to all of those people, and that's what Jesus has sent us into the world. Otherwise, He just would have, uh, like, swiped us up whenever we come to know Christ, but He has a purpose for us to be here, and that's to live in obedience as we reach out to those who He's called us to reach out to, uh, whatever that may take. And so... um, Maybe you're on the end of the eunuch, and maybe you don't know the gospel. The question to ask yourself is, is, do you believe the gospel? Because it's faith in Jesus and what he does that saves us. It's only by faith that we're saved. That's what the Bible tells us. And if you truly believe, then what happens? It It produces obedience. It produces repentance. If you truly believe in Christ, because Jesus did not just come to get us into heaven. He also came to change our hearts jesus said you cannot be born again or you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again and so the response is that if you believe the gospel if you believe in jesus then it's to repent and turn away from sin it's not repentance that saves us but if we have true faith it will produce repentance and we will go a different way than the way we have been going so um, that is the gospel and um, the main question is to ask ourselves is are we living the life that christ has called us to do I'm going to go ahead and pray. And have a time of silent prayer, maybe to examine our hearts, maybe to see where we're at with Christ, or maybe just to see what God's calling us to do in our lives. It's important.